I'd like to begin my talk this evening with a quatrain from Goethe. He says, What is most difficult of all, that which seems easiest of all, to see with your eyes what lies before your eyes? I really like that question and that comment because I see in myself that it's often quite difficult to really see clearly what lies right before me. In California, when I was there a few years ago, my friends were passing around this book, and maybe, you're, maybe you've seen it or are familiar with it. It has pictures, it's kind of like page after page of pictures that basically uh, looks like just lots of colors and shapes, very close together, almost like a kaleidoscope. And what you're supposed to do is to somehow squiggle your eyes in such a way that when you look at the picture, it turns into a three-dimensional picture that rather than being a flat, one-dimensional image, these amazing things pop out, like statues of angels and temples and sacred gardens and uh, birds flying through the air and uh, uh, mountain ranges. It's, it, but, but just looking at the flat image, it doesn't look like anything at all. But if you're able to turn your eyes in just a certain way, these amazing things come out. And in some ways, meditation is helping us shift our perception just a little bit, not a lot, just in such a way that we may begin to perceive things in a very radically different way. Not that what's in front of us changes that much, but all of a sudden, <laughs> something appears that we didn't quite expect when we were looking in another way. Why is this view called radical? Why would it be a radical view for us when we start to shift just a bit to see things differently? It's radical because generally our perception is quite confused and distorted. We don't see things very clearly, and that true reality is generally unavailable to us. I'll tell a story about a friend who I know quite well, who was sitting at Spirit Rock in California for just a weekend, and on the last evening before the end of the retreat, she uh, went down for the 615 sit. And in Spirit Rock, the dining hall is, is actually a five-minute walk away from the meditation hall outside. And so she went to the meditation hall uh, at 615 for the sitting. And she went into the meditation hall, this is right before the tea time, and nobody was there. It was completely empty. And so she kind of sat there for a minute, and she thought to herself, the retreat actually finished, and I didn't know it. Everybody went home. 
And she just sat there and she kind of thought, now how could I have not realized that the retreat was actually over? And then she sat there for another minute and then she said to herself, well, maybe everybody's just up at the meditation, uh, at the walking meditation hall. So she walked into the other part of the building to the walking meditation part and nobody was there. And so she sat there for a minute. She said, maybe everybody's just dematerialized. Maybe everybody just vanished in, in an instant. And she was really confused. And about 10 minutes went by, and then the bell rang for the sitting. It was actually at 6.30, not at 6.15. And then everybody started to come (laughs) to the sitting. Everybody came out of their rooms and from the dining hall. And, of course, she was, (laughs) came kind of, was broken back uh, out of her hallucination into reality. But it was quite interesting hearing that story. I've never really heard something quite that dramatic before. (laughs) People have some hallucinations on retreats, but that one was pretty strong. But in a way, it's sort of an extreme example of how we live our lives. (laughs) Know how our minds and our what we what we're telling ourselves and the pictures and fantasies that we have within our minds seem so believable so real that they actually transport us nearly into another world here she was actually you know had her eyes open (laughs) it was very present and the world had transformed in her confusion things the mind can carry us away like this I like to, I had, there's another story that is really the story when I first heard it um, at the beginning of the years I was practicing meditation. It's the story that's kind of stayed for me that um, reminds me of this very uh, uh, phenomenon that happens in our minds. It's the story of um, an ancient caveman uh, going into the cave one day where he continually would paint beautiful murals on the walls of the cave. And this particular day, he was painting an exquisite tiger, you know, with all the detail and the face and the whiskers and the eyes. And he was just getting finished with the drawing. And he just stepped back for a moment. He looked at it and he said, oh my God, it's a tiger. And he ran out of the cave. It looked so real. He did such a good job that it became very believable, and he ran out. So it's my, my, little, my little phrase for that is painting tigers on the wall, painting tigers on the wall of my own mind, because in a way that's what happens. I'm painting these um, pictures, these scenarios, these um, images on my mind, and I get frightened. I get really scared. But often there's absolutely no reality. The reality is quite otherwise than I think it to be. And so when that happens, I have my little phrase, oh, painting tigers on the wall, painting tigers on the wall, when I'm able to see it. Sometimes we notice that we can be going along in our doing whatever we're doing through the day, in our daily life, and the thoughts are going through the mind 
and it can seem just like almost like we have a radio on in the background. It's just not not much is impacting consciousness. You just you probably notice this while you're here that sometimes you can just you're doing your walking meditation or you're eating or you're brushing your teeth and thoughts are just kind of rolling by and it's not really a problem. Nothing's really those thoughts aren't really gripping consciousness in any way. But then there's other times when we really are consumed by our thoughts and the stories that we're, re- we're, we're weaving in the mind. And we feel there can be a sense that nothing else is going on. That's the only thing that's occurring, whether I'm having a memory about something that happened with my mother or my partner or uh, something that might happen at when the retreat finishes, and, and we feel consumed by it, both through the thought and through the feeling. Now, it's interesting to look at what actually makes the difference in our experience between being very caught by the thoughts in our mind and not being thought, caught by the thoughts in the mind. Because it's just the same thought. It is the same kind of rolling pattern of thinking that goes through the mind. But there's a difference. What is it? In the teachings, that difference is generally described as uh, with the word identification. There's an identification with the thought. This identification is like a stickiness. It's like this sense of ourselves come into play. There's the eye arises. It kind of sticks to the thought that's just minding its own business. And it becomes real. It becomes fabricated. And then the feelings arise, the whole associations arise, and we get very caught by it. We also call this attachment. When we're attached to our thoughts. That stickiness, one teacher called it the Velcro mind, you know, that, and you know Velcro. You know, some, some of the Velcro they're making now, you can hardly tear apart. You know, it's so hard. It sticks together so well. But some, uh, some of our thoughts are exactly the same as that. We can't tear ourselves away. This identification is a tightening. It's like there's a, a contraction in the mind around the thought. It's almost like a muscle that, that just grabs onto the thought and we can't see any other possibility in that moment. That's it. Our vision narrows and all we see in front of us is what we see. And what we see is the way it is and, there's, and nobody can tell us any differently. This process is generally quite unconscious. I mean, for, for most people, it's not one that's seen very clearly at all. In fact, I've met people, when I talk to them about their thoughts, they don't even know that they have thoughts. Thoughts? What are thoughts? You know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think. My mind's clear. My mind's empty. I don't have any thoughts. I mean, we, people can be so disengaged from the process that there's not even the ability to turn that reflective consciousness to see the, the words uh, moving within the consciousness. It's usually pretty unconscious. But when we come here, this is one of the aspects of the mind we can start to see pretty clearly. 
there's, I found this <coughs> little cartoon um, which really shows how we get so caught in thinking the things are the way we think they are. There's um, a man, there's two men, and one man has kind of an Eskimo sort of outfit on, and he's got his hands in two buckets. Um, one bucket is um, 40 degrees, this is in Fahrenheit, uh, 40 degrees and, and 80 degrees. And then the man next to him has like a swimsuit on, nothing really on but a swimsuit. And he's got his hands in an 80 degree bucket and a 120 degree bucket. And they're yelling at each other. The guy who has the, the Eskimo suit on and has his hands in the cold water is saying, it's hot, it's hot, because he's got, he's got this um, Eskimo suit on. And the guy who has his, it actually should be the other way around, I'm, I'm thinking. <laughs> actually, I think they've got it wrong. <laughs> yeah, they do. So the guy, the guy who's got his swimsuit on and has his hands in the hot bucket, I'm going to do it the way it should be, is saying, it's hot, it's hot. And the guy in the, and who has his hands in the cold bucket is yelling, it's cold, it's cold. And they're just arguing. They're yelling at each other, trying to convince each other of their point of view. But the reality is that all of the conditions that that one person, that one man is experiencing, are giving rise to that, uh, that belief, or that, that view, that it is hot. Whereas the other man who's standing right next to him has a whole different set of conditions that are impacting him in that moment, and that view is different. But they're not, <laughs> they're not seeing the wider picture, they're not seeing the bigger picture, just trying to convince the other person that that's the way it is. It's cold, it's hot. And in a way, that's what we do. You know, we, tr- we have our whole set of conditions, and then we try to convince somebody of our point of view, and generally aren't able to kind of soften around our view to be able to hear what those set of conditions are that the other person might be experiencing. This is what we practice. (laughs) We practice that letting go. So what's actually happening that these views come into play? The Buddha actually looked at this fairly clearly and in the tradition, there's a huge body of information called the Abhidhamma, or Buddhist psychology, which anything you want to know about how existence comes into play, it's all in the Abhidhamma. And it's in quite a lot of the other bodies of teachings as well. We are in a human body, and in this human body, there are the five senses the eyes, the nose, the taste, the touch, the smell, and we have a mind. And through the senses, through one of the sense doors, we make contact with an object. With the eyes, we make contact with an object of sight, or a form, a shape, with the ears, the sound, with the body, the, the, the touch, the nose, the smell, the mouth, the taste, and all of that is impacting us in every moment. And on and dependent on this contact, a feeling arises. And the feeling is either pleasant, unpleasant, or somewhere in between. 
And what one feels, whatever one feels, then one perceives. And I'll explain this a little bit more. This perception that comes into play is a factor of mind that recognizes and distinguishes the forms, whatever the form is through the five sense doors or the mind. And then we learn language, we learn words to identify those forms with sound or taste or touch, smell, sight. And this language gets stored in the memory. And then we use this body of information, this body of of language, whatever our language is, to help separate out all this chaos that's impacting us in every moment. And this is how we can make sense of our world. So, for example, we might make contact with a sound. You know, we're sitting here and we hear the, the lovely sounds coming from the outside. Of, sometimes they're lovely, not, sometimes not so lovely, of the birds. Mm-hmm. That sound hits the ear. Mm-hmm. And we may experience, in this case, say, a pleasant vibration or a pleasant feeling. Contact with the sound, a pleasant feeling arises, and then the thought may arise, ah, bird. That's the perception, the perception of that form. It's a bird. And we may, if we have a certain clarity of mind, a certain ease, a relaxation, we may just be able to stay with the loveliness of that sound. But generally, the mind doesn't stop there. It makes contact with something, there's a feeling that arises, a perception, a recognition of something that's occurring, a person, a a thing, a, a, a situation, whatever. And then we have this whole load of associations from our past that are stored in the memory that come into play. And these associations that come up through the thought are loaded with distortions, that come about through unconscious projections, uh, preconceived ideas, uh, prejudices, and desire. It's loaded. It just forms a very nice veil or filter over our consciousness, and it's very difficult just to stay with the bare experience or the bare contact and feeling and, 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 and initial perception. When we're not aware of this, we can be really overwhelmed by it. It can overwhelm consciousness in such a way that to the extent that we can become quite debilitated by the whole load of of associations that we can bring to an experience. I want to tell you um, something that happened to me that that, that I think exemplifies this. Um, some years ago, um, well, first, uh, first let me start like this. When I was growing up, I was growing up in um, mid-America in a place called Cleveland, Ohio. Now, that I, whenever I say uh, places in America, I'm never sure what association that, that brings up for people. <laughs> but I was raised in a place called Cleveland, Ohio. And in Cleveland, 
there was a very um, strong segregation between blacks and whites, the Afro-Americans and um, more the the whites and the affluent whites. It was very, you know, the, the, the blacks lived downtown in uh, a very poor section of town and the whites lived in the better sections of town. And so when I grew up, my associations towards uh, people of color, particularly Afro-Americans, was kind of, you don't really associate with them. And sometimes my father would, he had some property down in um, the section where the Afro-Americans lived, and I would go with him sometimes, and I really felt that separation, you know, like I was this young uh, teenage white girl, and, you know, I, I, sh I had to be really careful. Very, very strong kind of racist ideas. So about uh, four or five years ago, I was at a conference, and after the conference, I got a ride with some people to go back to where I was staying, and in the car with me was one of the teachers uh, in, our, in our community that is black, is Afro-American. And he sat right next to me. And this was the first time in my life that I had sat near and touched uh, an Afro-American. And it was really quite incredible what happened for me just in that car ride because of all of my past associations, my present associations, actually knowing this person a little bit, and just sitting there watching what was happening in my own mind, in my own consciousness, my own uh, a, a flood of associations about uh, being near this person. And it was really um, telling for me in terms of what we're carrying, the, our past associations and influences from the past, and how they can influence the present. And when there's not the awareness, when there's not the uh, uh, understanding of what's actually happening in the mind, and, there, and when there's not the understanding, there's the possibility of really being in reactivity, really being in uh, identification with that whole set of, of thoughts, and uh, having a very, very painful experience. But for me, in that case, I was able to see it, and it was actually very fascinating. And I actually was able to talk this person about it and tell him what was going on and it was a very, very important opening for me oh, just in that situation. Our thoughts can seem so real and they shape our reality. We so easily get lost in our views, our ideas, and our beliefs and they distort our perception. These are the fixations in our mind that limit our view. They limit our ability to see things in a wider perspective. And they interfere with seeing clearly. It's another story. A long time ago, a samurai went to see the Zen master. And when he went to ask if he could be seen, the Zen master respectively, respectively, uh, respectfully received him. 
But when he went up to the uh, Zen master, the samurai started to abuse him. He looked the Zen master in the eyes and he said, you, you are a pig. You look like a pig, you dress like a pig, you walk like a pig. And the Zen master sat there very still and replied, you look like a Buddha. You dress like a Buddha, you walk like a Buddha, you look like a Buddha. Well, the samurai was a bit surprised. (laughs) He was very proud of being a samurai, but he didn't know he was worthy of being a Buddha. So he asked the Zen master why he called him a Buddha. And the Zen master said, a pig sees a pig, a Buddha sees a Buddha. That's the way it is. (laughs) A pig sees a pig, a Buddha sees a Buddha. This, (laughs) This fixation of mind, one of my teachers, Sokni Rinpoche, Tibetan master, said, fixating mind is like ice shaped in different forms because the attention freezes. In that moment, the mind is not free, but it's frozen in a distorted view in that moment. It's like in these last few, it's been very interesting since the beginning of this retreat because um, people generally have a little trouble adjusting. And so some people really find the silence difficult and the fact that their people are looking down and people look pretty grim and uh, no eye contact and it's kind of cold and dark and and some people say it's really grim here you know what's going on it's so depressing you know making that objective statement like that's actually what's going on and then because I talk to so many different people, then, you know, like the same day or the next day, somebody will say, oh, it's so wonderful here. You know, it's just I've never felt so much light and, you know, being with this community of people who are really practicing together and I feel all this joy when I look at people. <laughs> you know, and then two hours later, somebody else will say this, the same, you know, and just hearing this whole... Um, different set of views that people have. And because I know that it's usually temporary, I listen (laughs) and hope that uh, it does pass so the person doesn't have to stay, uh, well, particularly the grim view. You know, the person doesn't have to, to be in that grim place for very long. But it's clear that there's no objective truth it's all subjective. It's all just what we're, what we're bringing dependent on our particular set of conditions at any given time. What's happening in our mind, in our body, in our emotional life, the psychological life, in our outer life. All those factors come together and they influence how we might perceive what's happening in, in any given time. 
So you might want to ask yourself, maybe for a moment, what views you're holding about being here. Now, what what may be arising for you right now? Is there anything that you might be uh, fixating around and thinking is the absolute truth? It's true for you. It may be true for everybody else, the way it is. You know, whether it's a view about the retreat or a view about the teachers, uh, the view about um, yourself. I think we have to hold these rather lightly when we really understand. Our views are not always harmful. Our views are not something that we necessarily have to get rid of. We, we are actually human. And part of being human means that the mind is going to be active. We have a mind, and the mind has a function. It has use. We need our minds, our thinking minds, to function in the world, to, to operate in, in the world in a, in a healthy way. So sometimes we may have a view, and uh, it's a beneficial view. You know, maybe like the view you had when you decided that you wanted to come to this retreat. You know, whatever was happening in your life at that time, it, it was a view that seemed to benefit you. It got you here to the retreat, and it was actually useful. But sometimes, and oftentimes, our views are destructive. And I think it's worthwhile to really uh, pay attention to which way they're going. Are our views um, helpful? Are they not helpful? Or sometimes maybe it's just a view, and it doesn't matter. It's just a view. I found this um, story just the other day um, that exemplifies this. Um, Deepak Chopra, I'm not very good with saying uh, saying names, Deepak Chopra. I'm sure you've heard of him. He's um, a doctor who explores consciousness and has written a lot of books and teaching a lot of workshops. And he reported on an experiment that was conducted among the, uh, the Tarahumara Indians in Mexico, a group known for their running ability. Routinely, certain members of the tribe ran the equivalent of a marathon or more every day. That's hard to believe. Ran the equivalent of a marathon or more every, or more every day. That's how many more? I think that's 20 seven miles, 27 miles, um, and had regular races between groups. The most intriguing aspect of their culture, however, was that they believed that the best runners were those in their 60s. A team of researchers showed that the best lung capacity, cardiovascular fitness, and endurance were indeed found in the runners in their 60s. Dr. Chopra points out that, that for this belief to translate into physical reality, the entire tribe had to believe it. Yeah. 
that that was a belief that was brought down in their tradition and so that men and I don't know it doesn't say men or women but but the people of this tribe actually started to increase their health as they got older <laughs> fascinating and then and then it goes on to say because this was in a book about women and women's bodies um, it points out the, the a negative uh, way that our beliefs can influence the culture in terms of our beliefs around aging uh, uh, for women. In our ageist culture, many women, instead of believing in their capacity to remain strong and attractive and vital throughout their lives, instead come to expect their bodies and mind to deteriorate with age. Thus, we as a society collectively create a pattern of thoughts, behaviors, and fears that make it that much easier to manifest the worst physical reality. And it's true. It's absolutely true. The way these kinds of beliefs can come in, and, and I don't, you know, I know how strong that is in America. I think more strong in uh, uh, the United States than in other parts of the world that I've seen. That belief that as you get older as a woman, forget it. <laughs> you may as well just kind of <laughs> disappear. I was telling Catherine, um, uh, we, we were having some conversation, and I, she was mentioning something about my gray hair, which is um, recent in the last year or so. And I said that I went to, uh, my mother lives in Florida, in, in, uh, around Miami, and there's a lot of elderly people who live down there. In fact, a lot of the, uh, the Jewish people from the north go down to Florida to, to live out the rest of their lives because it's a much better climate. So the average age of where my mother lives is about um, 65 to 70. And when I was visiting her, I went across the way to the community center for a, a talent show, a small talent show that was happening, and there were about 100 uh, elderly people there. Probably their average age was about 70. And of all the women, I was one of three women with gray hair. <laughs> There's probably 50 or 60 women in, that were 70 or 80, 90, 85 years old. It was really remarkable to witness that, just how deep that belief goes in the culture about attractiveness and strength and vitality in aging women. But it's a belief. It's a belief. It's not necessarily true. But as the first example shows, that if that belief starts to shift, the culture can begin to shift around that, and it actually changes the reality that women, in this case, may start to feel stronger, may start to feel more vitality, may start to feel more respect. Interesting how it really, it, can, it goes so deep for us. I remember one time here at Guy House when I was doing an intensive retreat for about uh, six weeks. Um, in my room, in my yogi room, there was a mirror and I was sitting, and I was doing intensive practice, sitting, walking, sitting, walking. And, but every day I'd have to, when I would walk past this mirror, 
the conditioned habit was to look in the mirror. I mean, I, that's, I don't know if I'm alone on that one. You know, you <laughs> walk past the mirror, you look in the mirror. And I noticed how there were certain beliefs and uh, judgments that I had about that image that would show up in the mirror. And it just was something that I found myself, the habit was so strong that I just wanted to take that, I took that mirror down. It's just like, don't want it, just just put it away. And then I found this, um, this wonderful quote from the Buddha that I actually put up where the mirror was. And it says, <laughs> it says the Buddha says, non-identification with anything has been declared by the Blessed One. For in whatever way one conceives, the fact is other than that. Whatever way one conceives, the fact is other than that. I think that is so profound when we really let that in. That the way that we're actually making something up in our minds, it's other than that. It's not the way it is. It really opens up a lot of possibility for a different view. So I'd like to actually suggest an exercise with the mirror, which might help us even to uh, reflect on this whole idea even deeper. Maybe while you're here, or maybe when you leave, try, try standing in front of a mirror for five minutes. Just stand in front of the mirror for five minutes. And look at the mirror in such a way that you see just what the mirror sees, just the facts of the reflection. That these facts don't have any evaluation, any judgment, any comparison, just the raw image of the vision itself. Just see if you can stay with that, just the reflection itself. And then see what your mind brings to the image beyond the fact. What is your mind? Then what does your mind bring in? I've never really liked the way I look. Oh, my face is a little fat. Oh, I look really pale. Um, oh, my hair. You know, um, I'm really getting old. Look at the wrinkles around my eyes. And it's just what the mind starts to bring in around that. The thoughts that we place on top of the image. We might be able to see that the the imaginative self-imposed reality has nothing to do with the real one. These are just judgments that we're making up with our own mind. If you stay with that, you might be able to see that the image is just the image and the thoughts are just the thought. That there's a real distinction there. There's the image and then there's what we're bringing to the image. And we might be able to see that the thoughts are from the past. The thoughts are conditioned from ideas that we bring from the past. The image is in the present. To see if we can be with the present and let go of the past. This is really our task, 
can we be with the present and not let the imposition from all of our past influences and associations and ideas and beliefs become so strong that they overwhelm the image itself and that we can't really see. This would be a good exercise, a hard one. When we look in this way, we can see that thoughts are simply arising thoughts. But as soon as they're believed in, they become an absolute truth, and we're in trouble. When we're not able to have some space, some lightness around our views, we're potentially in trouble. It narrows our vision, it closes our options, and we get fixated, we get stuck. Perhaps one, one strong uh, factor of mind that arises, and particularly on retreat, can be doubt, you know, self-doubt. All kinds of thoughts about ourselves that are really, uh, really put ourselves down. They're really hard. We're really hard on ourselves. And we doubt our ability to do the practice, and we doubt... Um, our, our inner strength, we doubt our clarity, we doubt um, uh, whether we're ever going to get anywhere in the practice. You know, that can be, just, it can be so debilitating if we don't watch it, if we don't pay attention to that view and to see, see it as simply arising thoughts, just simply arising thoughts. It doesn't have any reality outside of the reality that I give it. I give it the reality. These thoughts are so limiting. They really make us think that we know, I know, I know, and this is the way it is. A couple weeks ago, just before I came to England, I just moved into a new apartment just just the week before I left uh, in Seattle. And it's, I'm just getting used to it. It's uh, got boxes everywhere and not much furniture and there's a lot of noise. It's in the city, so there's a lot of noises that I'm getting used to. And outside my window, there was, the, the house next door is being painted, so it's fun, full of scaffolding. And there was this man uh, on the scaffolding making so much noise, like a vacuum cleaner kind of noise. And it was going on and on and on. I was getting really irritated because I'm just getting used to being in the city anyhow, and, not, and I'm getting used to the noises. So I really wanted to go tell that man to stop. And when are you, when are you going to stop? <laughs> How long is this going to go on? And I got up to go to the window, and I saw this man on the scaffolding carrying this really heavy vacuum cleaner. He was vacuuming where he was sanding the paint or sanding the wood or something off the windows, and he looked so tired. <laughs> he was just lugging this really heavy machine, and he just and I could hear him sighing. Oh, he was just so unhappy. <laughs> and my my irritation just dissolved. It just dissolved in an instant. 
that view I had, that idea I had, that he was really a, a terrible person for disturbing my peace. And he's just doing his job, <laughs> you know. And he was having a real hard day of it, you know, being up there a couple of hours having to drag this thing around, you know. So it's very interesting. I just noticed in that moment how my view just collapsed, just like the air going out of a balloon, just deflated. Ah, oh. you know. Oh, I wish, you know, I wish I could do something for him. I wish I could help him in some way. Just that that shift there. When we look carefully at our minds, we, see, we can really see that, the, that our thoughts are not so solid. You know, when we look at the things around us and, and, and the situations around us, things are not so solid. Things are changing all the time. Our thoughts are changing all the time. The sights and sounds, taste, touch, smells, the, the situations we find ourselves always changing. Nothing lasts at all. And when we see this clearly, we begin to question. We begin to question um, what, what, what's going on. You now we look at something and what is it? Is it really the concept that I brought to what I thought it was? When I, when I look at a flower, Am I, am I looking at the flower from my idea of a flower? Am I really able to look at the flower and, and beyond that concept, beyond my picture of what I think it should be? What is it? You know, when you look at somebody you know, do you know that person? Like, who are you? Who are you if I'm not holding on to all of my my ideas and my preconceived beliefs about you. Who are you? And when we turn that back to ourselves and we let go of those ideas and those beliefs, who am I? Who am I? Now, when we don't carry around the baggage from the past, which is very heavy, we know that. Very heavy. We want to let it go. And we have the opportunity here to drop it. Find out who you are, what things are from a fresh view, a fresh perspective. This great mystery that we live in. And initially we can feel quite uneasy and insecure and vulnerable when when things start to break up and we don't have so much security in the knowing anymore. But as this truth of things starts to deepen and we become less identified with the mind, we find that we actually feel more spacious. We find that we can allow things to come and things to go. We don't have as much holding, much, as much grasping, much as many demands and expectations. In this way, we begin to drop out of the head, the mental realm, and we what do what I call drop into the heart. And I, I really feel that that's the experience that happens as we let go of our fixations and our conclusions about things. There's a way that as we open out, 
we can begin to experience life more from a different part of our being. And it seems that experience happens more from here, from the, from the heart area of our being. It's where we can meet experience more wholly, more fully, rather than from necessarily from the top part of our head, from our eyes and our, and our thinking about it. But there's more of a whole body experience, which, which I like to call dropping into our heart. And in this place, we meet life as it actually is. So we need to let go. We let go. This is the practice of letting go. And these techniques and practices really show us how to do this, how we can practice this. So how do we practice this right here and right now? With mindfulness, we notice when we're caught. We notice when we're getting attached and identified with something in our mind. We see if we can be aware of that fixation and that contraction. And right in the moment of that recognition, we can relax. Just It's a relaxation. It's a, a whole bodily relaxation. When we relax the mind, we relax the whole being. And it's this relaxation that frees the mind from attachment. We let go in that moment. And every moment of mindfulness weakens this attachment and it reinforces non-clinging and clear-seeing. And it doesn't mean that the view or the thoughts disappear. It means we're not holding it so tightly that we can't see in a, a larger way, in a wider way. This is what begins to bring the experience of freedom, lightness, and ease in our life as we go along. I just want to end with this, these words from Irma Bombeck, who wrote this, these words um, called, If I Had My Life to Live Over. And she wrote these words uh, after she found out that she was dying from cancer. She said, If I had my life to live over, I would have gone to bed when I was sick instead of believing the earth would go into a holding pattern if I weren't there for a day. I would have invited friends over to dinner even if the carpet were stained or the sofa faded. I would have taken the time to listen to my grandfather ramble on about his youth. I would never have insisted that the car windows be rolled up on a summer day because my hair had just been teased and sprayed. I would have sat on the lawn with my children and not worried about the grass stains. When my kids kissed me in I never would have said, later, now go get washed up for dinner. There would have been more I love you, more I'm sorry. 
And in this way, it's the letting go. It's the letting go of all those things that we feel so important to hold up ourselves, hold our world together. Being a little bit more impassioned, a little bit more wild. This is what's possible as we let go. Let's sit together for a few minutes. When you hear the bell, see if you can just hear the bare sound. Maybe not even picking up the concept of bell. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.